So our scripture today is Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. So our speaker today is Nick Parsons. He's the managing director of the Stratum Foundation and a big champion of church planting here in the Bay Area. Uh, Nick has been a very good friend of Currents for some time. Um, Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, guys. Um, Yeah, it's good to be here again. This is my third time speaking here at Current. Uh, Again, I'm a huge fan of this church, of David and Cindy Collister. Uh, I'm sure you guys already know this, but you have exceptional leaders at Current, Uh, not just David and Cindy, uh, but I'm just honored to speak here this morning and let them have a little vacation time. So uh, like I said, like, like Chris said, I work for a couple organizations that are dedicated to training funding and supporting brand new churches. Uh, One's called the Orchard Group, which is kind of a national organization. The other's called Stratum Foundation, which is focused here in the Bay Area. And one of the challenges of working with new churches, sometimes we call those things church plants, is that by their nature, they're just often smaller entities because they're brand new. Uh, Some of that's great and some of that is difficult. Uh, My wife, Rachel, and I, we've been married for 20 years. We have five kids. Yeah, I said five. Um, And uh, for the, the overwhelming majority of that time, We've served and attended new churches, and so we've experienced the highs and the lows of being a part of a new church, but we just love a new, new church plants, and so I'm so glad to come and speak here at a church that's still new, uh, current, um, and if this is your first time, I just even want to say thanks. I think you've come to the right place. There, there's almost nowhere better to go if you're interested in, in finding a new community or exploring faith in a brand new church, so I'm glad you're here, and I hope you find the kind of community here at Current that will help you in your exploration of faith or in your faith journey and story. Uh, I want to start our time today by looking at the psalm that was read, Psalm 119, a section of it. Uh, it's an iconic passage in the Bible. It's the longest psalm in all of Scripture. If you've ever done like one of those year Bible reading plans, and then you get to Psalm 119, you're like, oh, crap, I did not allot the time necessary for this enormous chapter in the Bible. We're not going to be looking at all of that. Uh, but Psalm 119 champions time and time again the value of the Word of God. Uh, It it talks about the law of God, the commands of God, his statutes, his decrees, his precepts, all these different uh, synonyms for for word and law. And you can read this kind of theme again and again in Psalm 19. If you you have a Bible, you could turn there if you like. If not, it'll come on the screen. Uh, But Psalm 119, it's an ode to the importance of the word of God in the life of God's people. And we're going to be looking primarily at verses 65 through 72. And we'll also spend some time in Genesis, but we'll get there in a minute. Uh, you, so you, in, when you read Psalm 119, you have repetition of phrases like verse 66, I trust your commands. Verse 67, I obey your word. Verse 68, teach me your decrees. Verse 69, I keep your precepts with all of my heart. Verse 70, I delight in your law. It's just five verses, but you could go on and on, not just in the section we're looking at, but in the whole chapter. And by repetition, Psalm 119, it's kind of like this jackhammer that's just like constantly reminding the reader that God's word, his instruction, it's critical. His word is valuable. His commands are life-giving. We read this again and again in Psalm 119. 
what's interesting about Psalm 119 is that there's another theme as well, maybe a, a subtext happening in that story, one in which the author, the psalmist, shares of their struggles, their hardship, and their pain. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience, I haven't had it super often, but when you're reading the Bible and something just like jumps out at you and it sticks with you and you're like, man, I can't stop thinking about that. Uh, that happened to me a few years ago when I was reading Psalm 119, uh, and, and it's just, I, I felt so compelled by it that I wanted to uh, write a message about it. Uh, and what jumped out to me was the word afflicted and the word surrounding it. Uh, that word occurs four times in and around the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, we read it first in verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Comes up verse 75 later. I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous and that in your faithful in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We read it a third time, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Affliction is a theme in this section, but the verse that really jumped out to me was verse 71. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It was good for me to be afflicted. That phrase makes like no sense to me. It was good for me to be afflicted. On one hand, you have this celebration of God's word, this celebration of the message and commands of God. And on the other hand, you have this context of pain, this disclosure of affliction from the author. And what you have here in Psalm 119 is a person who has faced trials, who has experienced hurt, who has seen failure, but whose hope and trust in God remains, whose love for God and his word remains. It seems that the author of this psalm's love for God has even been strengthened by their difficulty, strengthened by their affliction. And I guess we should also just assume and say out loud that these aren't minor afflictions. Uh, the Hebrew word that the author uses here is a word called ana, uh, and it's sometimes translated as oppressed, humiliated, humbled, subdued, even violated. It's a really strong word. And, and if you read all of Psalm 119, you see that the author has faced strong and serious trials. These aren't like minor annoyances. These are like afflictions, okay? And it's because of this, though, that this psalm can speak to us today, I believe, and speak to our experience as well, uh, no matter how hurt or how, no matter how deep our hurts or afflictions are. The author of this psalm is not saying, it's no big deal, you've been hurt or afflicted or oppressed, God's good, get over it. That's not the message of the psalm. They're not saying, yeah, some hard things happen in your life, but on the other hand, there's some good things that outweigh the bad things. That's not the message either. No, they're looking back at their own story and they're declaring something more profound, that somehow their suffering, their affliction, their pain has actually produced fruit, has actually produced good, that what harmed them in now in some way has helped them or is helping them. That's very different than some of the other ways we think about or our culture thinks about suffering or difficulty. This, uh, th you know, this is a message of hope and it's a message of trust and it's a message I think many of us need today or will need at some point in our life. Even if it's hard to imagine for you that it's possible for God to take your pain, your hardship, your seasons of frustration, your lingering hurts and turn them into something good, I think that's true and I think we need to hear that. I know I need to hear that. Uh, this isn't something that it's good for um, uh, a, a guest speaker to, to disclose usually, uh, but the past few years have been hard for me. 
Uh, I had a business venture fail that I invested in a, co a co-working thing. That was really a, a bummer. Uh, I've struggled as a parent at times. Uh, I've wrestled with disappointment, with embarrassment, with exhaustion. Uh, I gained like 40 pounds, and I'm trying to lose that now. Uh, I've grieved so many friends leaving the Bay Area, and I'm still in the middle of some battles, still trying to heal from some wounds. Uh, and so today, as I'm speaking and sharing about this psalm, I'm not someone who's sharing because I've got it all figured out, but as another human on this journey with you, navigating affliction and faith. Uh, the image I have in my mind of myself here in the sermon is of digging into the scriptures and getting to a place where I can sort of see out into the horizon a place of hope. And I can see a place of good peace and a place of rest, and I'm not there yet, but I've seen it, and I want to take us there this morning, point us there this morning, okay? So whatever your affliction, wherever you're stuck, wherever, wherever you're experiencing hurt or fear or doubt or pain, uh, whatever comes to your mind when words like that happen, I want you to, to, to embrace that this morning. Wherever you feel guilt or shame or exhaustion, our text today promises the possibility of God's redemption, of God's healing, of God's restoration. Uh, Psalm 119 calls us to join the psalmist so we too can say that phrase, it was good for me to be afflicted. That's where I hope we're mo moving towards. Uh, as we study this text today, it's also important to note that we don't know the cause of the author's affliction. Was it a self-inflicted wound? Did their own failure or personal immaturity contribute to what they experienced as affliction? That seems possible. The author indicates that at times they went astray. That's verse 67, that one went astray. Or was this an affliction or a hardship that was caused by other people? Did the author, did someone treat the author poorly? Did someone hurt them? Uh, there's some indication in Psalm 119 that this might be the case as well. The author speaks of being persecuted and harassed by people. Or maybe the author has in mind one of those rare situations where God himself is the one doing the afflicting. Uh, is, is the author's story like the biblical story of Job, where God allows Job to be afflicted as part of a larger cosmic drama that's happening? Is this an affliction from God that the author has in mind? Is it affliction because of his own mistake or own mistake, affliction at the hands of others, or even affliction that might come from God? What does the author of Psalm 119 have in mind? I think it's actually safe to consider all of those options, any of those. It doesn't make it really clear. Maybe that's intentional. It's like the author of the psalm has in mind a principle uh, as much or more than a specific situation. And the principle is that this psalm offers us is that whatever harms us can actually be redeemed by God. It can be used by God to bring good to ourselves and to others. It's one of the most amazing things about God, the most amazing things of the scriptures, is how he takes bad and turns it into good. And I love that about the Christian faith, the message of the Bible. Uh, Nassim Tlaib, uh, if you're familiar with him, Nicholas Nassim Tlaib, has a fascinating book called Anti-Fragile. Anyone familiar with his book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain From Disorder? It kind of like made a little wave in you know, Silicon Valley world maybe four or five years ago. Uh, and in it, he describes three kinds of ways that things, uh, people, objects, companies, systems, families, whatever, respond to stress and disorder. Uh, they're fragile things that easily break. So if I had like a delicate glass and I dropped it, it responds poorly to stress and trauma. It shatters, okay? Fragile things. And then there's like robust, resilient things. They're like rocks. If I had a rock and I dropped it, it just thump and hit the floor, you know? It's unaffected by impact, by trauma. If you drop it, it just hits the floor. It's robust, it's resilient. But Talib goes on and he describes a third property or category of some rare things, anti-fragile things. 
Uh, for instance, a human muscle is anti-fragile, right? It requires a certain amount of resistance and even trauma to be healthy and grow stronger. Like if you don't give a muscle exercise, it will like grow weaker. But if you actually injure your muscle just a little bit, little micro tears, it will grow stronger. Uh, certain companies are anti-fragile. They grow strong when the market is crazy and volatile. Uh, anti-fragile things take chaos and the disorder that they face and they turn it into good. And what's interesting is humans can actually correspond to all these categories as well. We could be fragile, we could be robust, or we could be anti-fragile. And how we respond to our afflictions will determine the kind of person that we will be. And I think that the author of Psalm 119 is calling us to a kind of Christian anti-fragility. All right? But I think the key thing that I just want to also say here is that we don't default into anti-fragility. We default into uh, to being fragile or maybe robust, but we don't default into anti-fragility. We don't automatically become the kind of people that look at our stories, our pain, our struggles, and trust God to use them for his benefit, for the benefit of others, or for our own benefit as well. It's not like an automatic thing. It's not an easy thing. We have to struggle constantly to stay, to get to that place, and we have to fight to stay there. I don't know how you've been afflicted in your life. I don't know where you are presently facing hardship or difficulty uh, or or oppression or pain. Uh, I don't at all think what the psalmist is saying here is easy. Uh, But I want each of us with our own unique afflictions to be able to say of our own stories that it was good that I was afflicted because our suffering is being redeemed. That's, again, the hope that I have today. Not that what was happened was good. Let me say that really clear. Not that what happened was good. Some of us here have suffered terrible, terrible things that were not good. Unquestionably wrong things. But we serve a God who's powerful enough to take the worst things and to use them for good. So how do we become anti-fragile? How do we join the psalmist and be able to say of our own pain, it was good for me to be afflicted? Uh, To answer that question, I want to go to a weird place. I want to examine an incident in the life of the Hebrew patriarch Jacob in the book of Genesis. It's a super weird story. Uh, It's going to seem like an odd turn. But stay with me. I think it's interesting. Uh, the story we're going to be looking at is in Genesis chapter 32, uh, verse 22. You can turn there uh, to the first book of the Bible. If you have one, again, Genesis 32. If not, uh, the text will come on the screen. Uh, I'm going to read some parts. I'm going to summarize some others and kind of give some context of Jacob before we get into the story that we'll be diving deeper in. Uh, Jacob, if you're familiar at all with him or his story, it's okay if you aren't. Uh, Jacob was a person that was, was very accustomed to affliction, and he was familiar with struggle. He literally struggled like before he was even born. Like uh, Jacob's parents are Isaac and Rebekah. His parents were Abraham and Sarah. He's part of this legacy family of the Jewish nation, like kind of the, the first family of Israel. And while he's in his mother's womb, Genesis describes Jacob as struggling with his twin brother Esau. His very name, Jacob, implies struggle and affliction. His name, Jacob, means supplanter or deceiver. Uh, and it implies that he's one who strives for control and priority a- in the midst of, like, struggle. Uh, and Jacob's family is, like, very complicated. Like, Jerry Springer-level dysfunction. Um, young people, Jerry Springer was this show. I don't even know if it's around. It's like they got the craziest people in the world and just let them go nuts, like, about their relationships on this. It's YouTube. Um, That's Jacob's family, okay? Um, His father favors older brother Esau, who's this sort of hunter, outdoorsman guy. Uh, His mother favors Jacob, who's sort of this like indoorsy kind of guy. And and Jacob, he's uh, afflicted by this relational strife between his parents and his siblings himself. Uh, And later in life, Jacob, he's going to make this even worse. He's going to add to his own pain and his own troubles by conspiring with his mother to steal his brother Esau's blessing or his inheritance. 
Uh, and he'll, they'll use deception to gain favor from their dad, and it works. Uh, through harshness, he lies, and he gains his brother's inheritance and his brother's birthright, which is complicated stuff. But he basically steals the, the, the legacy of the inheritance that his brother's supposed to get. Um, but when he's doing this, he, he totally jacks up his family. He fractures his family. Uh, he has to flee from them. He has to live estranged from his family from then on. He's afflicted because of his family's like pre-existing dysfunction, and then he adds to that with his own sin. After leaving his family, he has to travel a long distance, and he faces the deception of a distant relative that he goes to, this guy Laban. Uh, Jacob, he's tricked into marrying one of Laban's daughters, Leah, instead of the one that he was supposed to marry, Rachel, who he eventually marries as well. I meant it when I said it was Jerry Springer crazy. Um, it's just high levels of dysfunction happening in this guy's life, like extreme uh, tension, infighting in his family, and with his descendants, and this will go on for generations. The, the legacy impact of the dysfunction of their family will go on for generations. Uh, and after these problematic marriages, Jacob continues in deception, okay? He schemes his father Lake, uh, Laban out of wealth, out of prosperity. Jacob's whole life is marked by affliction caused by himself, inflicted on him by others. He's someone familiar with affliction. And yet for him, things get so dysfunctional where he is, where he's fled to, that Jacob has to flee there and go home. He has nowhere else to go. He has to go back home to this other highly dysfunctional situation and face his brother Esau. It's the only place he can go. But what's interesting is that while Jacob was away, Esau has become very strong and wealthy, like kind of a tribal leader in the region. The brother that he deceived and he stole from has grown into like a very powerful person with like a little mini army of sorts. And when, Jacob, when Esau hears that Jacob's returning, he goes out to meet him with an army of 400 people. And Esau hears about this, and he, or Jacob hears that this is coming. He's like, there's a 400, your brother has 400 guys, and he's coming to meet you. And he's like, oh no, this isn't going to go well. Um, his deception has come back to haunt him. He now has to face this brother that he's deceived. And Jacob is afraid that he's going to die. Jacob, who has seen opposition, who's been afflicted by others, who's made his own mistakes, he now faces a problem that he can't outsmart, something he can't run away from. The consequences of his sin have caught up with him. And so the night before he's about to meet his brother Jacob, uh, his brother Jacob uh, sends his family away from him. And uh, the story picks up in Genesis 32, we're going to read in just a second. It's a very unique, somewhat strange story. I'm just giving you a heads up. Um, I should also mention that my friend Casey Fritz, um, who's an author and illustrator, um, spoke about this a few years ago, and it's something that I heard, and so I'm using some of uh, his insights in this sermon as well. Um, let me read the passage, add some comments along the way. This is Genesis 32, verses 22 through 24. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, that's his family, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. We're going to learn later that that man that is wrestling Jacob is actually God or a messenger from God, or some people even think it's like a pre-incarnate Jesus. Scholars debate that, but suffice to say that Jacob begins this night alone, facing his worst fear in the middle of affliction, and then a mystery man comes to fight him. Uh, and this fight lasts all long, all, all night long. It's a wrestling match that goes on for hours and hours. And by the morning, Jacob would have been like utterly exhausted. So just again, let's remember wrestling. Anyone here ever do like wrestling, like in high school, any wrestlers or yeah, mud wrestlers? No, no wrestlers? Okay. Um, 
Olympic wrestling or the UFC, matches are like five minutes, okay? Or like uh, rounds are like five minutes. And they might do three rounds, they might do five, minute, five rounds. You know, so you're talking like max 25-minute wrestling match, fight, okay? Uh, if I wrestle my kids, even the little ones, for like 10 minutes, like I'm going to be exhausted, okay? Imagine wrestling or fighting with a grown man for an entire night, all night long. Uh, what is happening? Super weird story, right? Um, very strange. He would have been exhausted. It's this critical moment in his journey and his faith. God has provided Jacob this like metaphor for his life. Uh, he's battling God. He's battling man. Jacob is wrestling for dominance and he's refusing to submit. It's like he's acting out. God has provided this sort of interesting context for him to act out his relationship with God in the world. And this nighttime wrestling match, it's the story of Jacob's life. And it's a moment in which Jacob is again going to be inflicted, but it's the very moment in which everything is going to change for him. It's fascinating. And so I want to pair this story with what we read from Psalm 119 and make some points about how we can become anti-fragile, how God can redeem our affliction so that we might join the psalmist in saying, it's good for me to be afflicted. So like Jacob, if we're to see our afflictions redeemed, if we're to find hope in the midst of our struggles, I have, uh, struggles, I have five points. First one is we must wrestle with God. We must wrestle with God. We're going to get back to Jacob, I promise. Um, while Jacob had a physical wrestling match with God, and I do believe that who, it's who he's fighting here, we all have our own spiritual wrestling matches with God. We have our own ways that we refuse to submit to him. We have our own ways in which we try to twist and force him into submission to our will. Each of us is in the middle, whether we acknowledge it or not, of fighting with God. We're locked in this battle for supremacy. Will we submit to him or will we keep fighting? It's the story of our own lives as well. It may seem overly allegorical, but where are you wrestling with God? What does he want you to do or be that you're fighting against? Until we acknowledge that there's even like a battle happening, uh, th th we won't even be able to see our afflictions as even possibly being good. It's until we have that context that we ourselves are in the midst of a spiritual battle with God until we see that we won't even have the framework to imagine that our afflictions could be good. Until we recognize that we are part of a greater story in our own lives, one in which we are wrestling with the reality of a God who seeks us out and wants us to submit to him, um, to his will, until then we will only see our afflictions in the darkness of this world's questions instead of the light of eternity. And it's when the light comes at dawn that our fights, that our afflictions begin to make sense. It's true for Jacob, it's true for us as well. It's what happens to Jacob in our text. God isn't afraid of the fight. He's down to wrestle with us for as long as it takes, even if it takes all night. He even initiates the fight sometimes. So don't be afraid to acknowledge your afflictions and wrestle with God. Like sometimes I think we're afraid of doing that and we just sort of like push it down and say, I don't want to think about that, I don't want to come to that. Don't be afraid to acknowledge your pain, your hardship, to wrestle with God about your fears, your doubts, your struggles. And so I ask you today, where do you need to engage God and wrestle? Is it a place of doubt? Is it a place, is it a moral issue that you read in the Bible and you're struggling with? Is it, is it an aspect of your life that you know doesn't honor God, but you can't seem to give up? Is it a pain that you can't make sense of? Where do you need to wrestle with God? The worst thing that you can do in a situation like this is to try to flee like Jacob did. The best thing you can do with God is to go. And even if it means there's going to be a fight, that's the best thing we can do is go to God and fight. Let's keep reading Genesis uh, 32, verse 25 and 26. Let me read that for you. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. 
so that his hip was wretched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. Uh, it's a little strange that God allowed Jacob to wrestle all night when we see here that he could like end the fight with a single touch. It's like in my mind, God's just like, bink, and Jacob's hip like explodes, you know? Uh, but God, he allows the wrestling, he allows the struggle, he allows the doubts, he allows the back and forth. And I wonder, you know, my creative imagination, did Jacob ever think he was winning? Was he ever like, one more turn and he's going to tap out? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Did he, did he have moments when he thought, oh, this God is not what I thought. I can take this guy. I have him right where I want him. God allows the struggle to go on. He doesn't pull away. He doesn't rush to dominate. God stayed connected to Jacob and grappled with him all night. Maybe even let him feel like he was winning. But eventually it became a time for God to end the fight. Night was ending, dawn was breaking, and so God touches Jacob's hip. Um, it's over. God touches him again, bink, dislocates Jacob's hip. And I should say aloud, hip dislocation is not a normal wrestling injury, okay? It's not like guys are wrestling, they're like hip dislocation. No, it's like very unusual. So if you're like Wikipedia, like I did, hip dislocations, um, there's a doctor who comes up and it says, a hip dis this is his quote, Jonathan Cluett, doctor of uh, hip dislocationology. Um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know. That. Um, a hip dislocation is a very unusual injury that is most often the result of severe trauma. The most common causes of hip dislocation include motor vehicle collisions, falls from a great height, sometimes catastrophic sports industries. This is what Bo Jackson, if anyone remembers him, had. And we might add wrestling with God. That wasn't in the Wikipedia, but <laughs> we could add it. Uh, Jacob, he comes into this fight afflicted. He's suffered at the hands of others, and he's made his own mistakes. And now God is going to afflict him with an injury that will end the wrestling match. But it's an injury that very interestingly moves Jacob from fighting with God to talking with him. All we have in the text is fight, fight, fight all night, and then at the end, there's a conversation. And eventually, we must do the same. Sooner or later, an affliction or a wound is going to happen to us that will stop everything. Uh, it could be a divorce. It could be a, a death. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a global pandemic. It could be a season of depression. Something tragic will happen in our lives, and we will have to come face to face with the God that we're fighting. And God, in his goodness, might even cause that affliction if he needs to. Uh, like C.S. Lewis has said, God whispers to us in our pleasures he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Being afflicted might just be the thing that changes everything for you. If we're to see our afflictions redeemed like Jacob, our second point, number two, we must submit to God. We must submit to God. We must give up our fight against God and begin a new conversation with him. Jacob fights and he fights and he fights until he faces an injury that ends the battle. But what we have left is Jacob and God still holding one another. But now they're talking face to face. It's a really interesting imagery. The dynamics between the two of them have changed. The story continues. Let me read Genesis 32, 26 to 32. Then the man said, again, they're holding one another now. Let's, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of the hip of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I think this is an amazing section. God and Jacob have gone from a battle to an embrace. The relationship has changed. Jacob's posture towards God has changed. And God desires the same sort of change for us, that the God you are fighting against would become the God that you cling to, talk to, ask things from, that God's word, his message, his uh, giving of an identity would be something you cherish, that God's name, his identity, that you would want to know. That is why the psalmist loved God's word, because they'd been through hard things with him. They had wrestled, and yet they had submitted, and they had found that God's way was better than their own, and so they trust his words. They want to know his message. Uh, In the Bible, especially in Psalm 119, uh, the line between God's words and God himself, it's almost blurry. Uh, It might even make you uncomfortable sometimes if you read Psalm 119. Uh, At times, it seems like the author of Psalm 119 almost worships God's words. But really, I think what's just happening is there's just a cherishing of God himself. And God loves, the psalmist loves God so much that his words become almost this like tangible way of him uh, grabbing onto him or holding onto him or experiencing him. And it's as if they're grasping God himself through his word. Uh, Which leads to our third point, if we're to have our afflictions redeemed, if we're to see them as good. Number three, sorry, we must cling to God. We must cling to God, number three. For Jacob, that was a physical clinging. Uh, He couldn't let go until God spoke to him until Jacob had heard from him, until he heard God's words of blessing, until he knew more about him. Uh, For us and for the author of Psalm 119, that clinging, that longing for God, that seeking to know more about him might look different, right? Uh, Today, we have in written form an access to the word of God that Jacob didn't. Jacob had to wait for God. It's always so interesting in the book of Genesis, like before the Bible existed, you had these people who were experiencing God, and like Jacob had to wait for God to show up so he could hear anything from him, like physically show up or speak to him in a dream or a vision or something, we're able to open up our Bibles every day and hear from God today and every day. That's part of the the Christian story. And so if you are interested in hearing from God, opening the Bible and beginning to read it is the best start that you could make. Uh, Listen to a portion of our passage from Psalm 119. Uh, Let me read it again, Psalm uh, verses 65-72. It's a declaration of love for God, and consequently a love for God's word, his law, his commands. Because the author has experienced affliction... And yet God has turned this pain into good. And so the author loves him. The author eagerly longs to know God and he cherishes his words. It's not a perspective the author would have, I think, without facing affliction, without facing so God. I'm going to read our text again, okay? Imagine it coming from the psalmist, coming from the mouth of Jacob, coming maybe even from you again, now that we've heard it. It says this, do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Jacob clung to the physical manifestation of the God that he wrestled. The psalmist clung to the words of God revealed in the scriptures, and we are lucky because we get to do both. If we are Christians, we cling to Jesus, the true, complete, the final, fullest word from God, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the God that people could touch and see. We cling to him, the word made flesh. 
but we also get to cling to the word of God. We'll return to this idea of Jesus again in our point five, but if we're to see our affliction, number four, we must accept a new identity. We must accept a new identity. Jacob, his name, meaning supplanter or deceiver, has now been given a new name. He's going to be called Israel. It's an interesting thing. There's a name change that happens here, which means something like struggles with God. Jacob's identity, who, he, who he's supposed to be, has been redeemed. He's been renamed. And from him will come a people who bear this name, like to this day. From this new identity will come a new mission, a new purpose. And to this day, the legacy of this new identity that Jacob given is still declared. The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, from whom Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world was born. And the Bible will tell their story, a people who wrestle with God, and hopefully like Jacob, are a people who prevail, not by winning, but by submitting, submitting to God. There are people who preserve his word and proclaim his message in the world. That is the purpose of Israel, the people who bear Jacob's new name and his new identity. And so God gives Jacob this new name, Israel, and he's now tasked to go and prevail, to overcome, to be anti-fragile, to see his afflictions as good, because it is through his wrestling, through his pain, that he met God. There's a story for Israel there. There's a story for us. That's what God longs for us as well. God wants to give you a new identity, to move you from opponent to friend, from orphan to son or to daughter, If you've already met God, whoever you were before you met God and submitted to him, you are that person no longer. You are no longer Jacob, the deceiver. You are Israel, the overcomer. That is God's hope for you, a new identity that is available today. To use your affliction for your benefit. To use your brokenness for the sake of his mission in the world. To give you a new name and with that, a new purpose. Our afflictions might bring us into the ring with God, but he wants us to leave with a new perspective, a new relationship with him, a new identity in him. And lastly, if we're to see our afflictions as good, if we were to embrace this new identity, our last point today, number five, we must trust in Jesus' afflictions. We must trust in Jesus' afflictions. Ultimately, God's plan to redeem us, to redeem our afflictions and our hurts centers on Jesus Christ. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us then that he does this through Jesus' own affliction. It is through his death that God brings our greatest good. Like the shape of this story is, is, is being laid down and we see it for ourselves and then it comes and it's Jesus and like the shape of the story happens again in an even more meaningful way. Jesus wrestled with God in the garden, but he submitted to him on the cross. Jesus clung to faith and was resurrected. He accepted his new identity as God's son. He became the king of a new kingdom, the leader of a new people, the church. Jesus accomplished all of this through his affliction on the cross. And in closing, I just want to read for us from Psalm uh, or Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, which is a prophecy about Jesus, the one who came from God and suffered for our sake, for yours and for mine, the one whose afflictions bring salvation and healing. This is a prophecy about Jesus, whom God can use, uh, whom God can use his affliction for your benefit. And as I read this text, uh, another kind of text you may have heard before, uh, whatever affliction and hardship you're facing or have been facing, whatever wrestling match that you're in the middle of with God, whether it's a, you know, you're thinking about a health issue you have or someone you love or a, a doubt that you have or a sin struggle that you have or a relationship that's broken and damaging, uh, I pray that you would look to Jesus and that you would submit to God, that you would cling to him in today in the midst of your struggle. 
that you would accept your new identity and that you would trust in Jesus and his affliction, which God can redeem for your benefit, for your good. The God of affliction afflicted for you. This is Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one who people hid their faces, he, from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Let's pray. God, it's hard um, to talk about affliction in a big room with so many stories of real hurt and real nuance and real difficulty and real pain. But God, I know that you know every story in this room, every instance of trauma, of abuse, every sickness, every damaged relationship, every doubt, Lord, you know. And so, God, I pray that as you have been pursuing each of us, that you have been wrestling with us and allowing us to wrestle with you, Lord, that today in this moment, that you might touch some of us, that we might see this affliction as a catalytic moment for our relationship with you to change, for the way for us to stop fighting and to embrace, for us to receive a new identity or to remember our new identity again. Lord, would you speak to us in this moment? Would you remind us of Jesus Christ crucified for us so that we might be reconciled to you? In the Son's name we pray.